Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. Good afternoon. You're so welcome. Um, if you are a guest or a visitor, we hope you feel very much at home uh, with us. If you join us online, uh, we hope you feel very much a part of what's happening here uh, physically, wherever you are catching up. If we haven't met you, I'm Andy. And um, I don't know if you've ever got to the end of a week in your life where you were like just glad it was over. Um, that, that was kind of yesterday for, for us. Um, all five of us were sick this week. And first time ever, like where it was like five different things. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. It's never happened to us before. Usually, like, somebody gets something and then, like, generously gives it to everybody else. Whereas, like, between sort of Monday and Friday, um, life got a bit hectic for us. So, I, I'm feeling a little bit fragile this morning um, or this afternoon. That's why I'm sitting down. Um, but we, we want to continue our uh, Habits of the Home, our Great Fast uh, series uh, today. And um, I've been saying this every week, but it's really, really important because at this time of year, when we have people up at the house or you're out for dinner or whatever, and you're like, do you want a glass of wine? They're like, no, no, I'm, f- I'm fasting uh, alcohol for Lent. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like, okay, cool, how's that, how's that going? And they're like, what do you mean, how's that going? Like, I can't wait for St. Patrick's Day is usually the headline. <laughs> <laughs> Some of you will know Tommy Tiernan, the comedian, who said uh, God must be Irish because he put St. Patrick's Day in the middle of Lent. Um, <laughs> That's the only way we can survive. But anyway, um, but you know, it's funny because like quite often the whole idea of Lent just gets wrapped up in this idea of you just fast something uh, just to, I don't know, prove to yourself that you can or something like that, um, which completely misses the point. Like we fast so that we can feast or focus. The point of fasting is so that we uh, deny ourselves of something usually a little bit uh, trivial or meaningless, chocolate or wine or something like that. Uh, so that we can feast or focus on something much more significant, um, hopefully for, for us in this community, the presence of Jesus in our lives. And uh, super, super important as we fast that we uh, think about and prioritize the things that we're actually focusing or feasting on. Uh, this week in our Habits of the Home devotional, we're, we are looking at this idea of fasting from acting out of anger and feasting on patience. I don't know how that makes you feel, but I'm a bit like, really? <laughs> this is where we're going this week. Uh, James actually said to me in the 9.30 uh, in, in our liturgy um, where it says, be, be angry. Um, he's like, really? Like, what, wait, I, I missed that in the Bible. Be angry? Where does it say be angry in the Bible? In case any of you are wondering, it's Ephesians 4. Um, another translation says, in your anger do not sin. Um, and I, I think this is some of where we're going to go today. Is there, there is a toxic... Um, way to do life with Jesus and spirituality, which is the denial of any emotions that are seen to be negative or bad. So you're not allowed to be angry. And so you spend your life lying when you're angry, right? Like that's what happens because, you know, God's good all the time. So (laughs) the scripture says, in your anger, don't sin, that actually anger in our lives is uh, sometimes really appropriate. There are things we see, there are things we experience that anger is a legitimate, valid, important even emotion. 
And the suppression of it or the denial of it will not lead you into a place of health and flourishing. Um, the important thing is that your emotional reality doesn't dictate your behavior. Now, that's like Yoda-level life. Uh, maybe that's just me, you know, uh, like just enough kind of, of this in my emotions from my kids leads to certain outbursts at times, you know, and then I find myself apologizing, sorry. Last week was full of that as we were all ill and tired, and every night was interrupted multiple times, and we are so out of shape for that kind of carry-on, and uh, quite often I was having these outbursts at moments where, I know those of you who are parents can't relate to this at all, but like just moments with my kids where they do things, and I'm like, what were you thinking? Like, talk me through the thought process. And then Dana says things like, that's not a good question for them. Because <laughs> they don't know any answers. <laughs> um, we fast from acting out of anger. where we, we pay attention to what's going on in our emotions. And then we prioritize living into a different way. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried that. It's really hard. Like, really hard. And depending upon your kind of energy levels and what else has been going on in your day, sometimes you have those moments when you're like, this is class, like I can feel myself with a certain emotion and now I'm actually choosing to walk this way. I'm like, how did that happen? And then other days, the complete opposite. Um, because really the point for us is, is to think through how we're formed. Um, da- Dallas Willard um, wonderful philosopher and theologian used to say that apple trees don't have to try hard to produce apples. That's just what it means to be an apple tree. And it's interesting as we prayed earlier through the fruit of the Spirit, this idea of what a life uh, immersed in God reality produces naturally. Not through an effort and a conjuring, but what just grows naturally in our lives. And the more saturated our lives are in the presence of Jesus, the more we practice the way of Jesus, the more our lives bear the fruit of Jesus. That it's not this kind of, I just have to be more patient. But there's a journey to to get us there. And I want us to look at a passage uh, today um, in 1 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, that that I I think um, highlights uh, some of this for for us. Um, Samuel 24, uh, we're going to read the whole whole chapter for us. So um, let me pray as we come to 1 Samuel Samuel chapter 24. Uh, Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you relentlessly pursue us with words of life. And Lord, we present ourselves to you now and we humbly and boldly pray, come Holy Spirit, speak to us, change us, help us to live more freely and more like Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. And this is 1 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, It says, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds along the way, and a cave was there. Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. 
The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut a corner of Saul's robe off. Afterwards, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom is the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord gave me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. It's a mad, uh, it's a a bit of a mad passage. There's there's loads loads going on, but I, I want us to kind of look at this through the lens of kind of the emotional landscape of David, and then we'll land in Psalm 103. Um, one of the things that's interesting about these stories is we can often come to these stories with sort of Sunday school lenses of like what's the kind of the big picture kind of God truth in it all and what are we supposed to just do with our lives and on we go. And, and often we actually miss some of the context of what's going on in the atmosphere, the hearts and minds of the people in the story. That the, the kind of political landscape of this moment. It's, it's so interesting. And like, to be honest, it's not that dissimilar to today where, you know, we've all sorts of political ideas and competing philosophies of left and right and conservative and liberal and everyone kind of gets into their camps and we become incredibly tribal. And it's really important that if someone in my camp is doing something that they win and if they win, I win. Or if somebody who's not in my camp loses, then that means I win. Or like, maybe like, let's just be uh, really blunt like, you know, Team Gary Lineker, Team BBC, and we'll not go too much into the depth of that right now, but we see this played out all the time. Who has power? How do I get power? 
And how do I then advance my vision of what the world and life should look like? And what's super interesting for this in this context is David, some of you will know the kind of life story of David. And Saul is the king. He's the guy who's in power, right? He's got the army. He's got the money. He's got the palace. He's got it all. And David in this moment is quite the opposite. He's kind of hiding, uh, running for his life in a cave. Now, for those of you who know the life story of David, you will know that like years previous, there's a holy man called Samuel, a prophet, who came to David's house and anointed him as the future king. One of the things that happens to me a lot in pastoral ministry is uh, helping people process uh, their lives whenever they thought God was going to do something and it didn't happen. Like, I don't know if you've ever had a moment in your life when, like, your faith was just on fire. And God just seemed like everywhere. And you had this really convinced sense that God wanted to do something with you in your life. And so you kind of reorder everything and you prioritize that thing and you go after it with everything you've got and, and things then don't work out. And what do you do? How do you feel? And quite often when I'm in conversations with people that have been in that kind of place, there is this kind of anger in their hearts, souls even, that comes from a sense of disappointment. I was convinced God was going to do something and then I actually made some huge choices and some sacrifices and moved towards that and then everything sort of fell apart, and now I don't know what to do. Like, I haven't, like, turned into an atheist overnight, but I just don't know what God is for. Because I, I thought he said all that stuff, and then none of it happened. So what do I do now? David is a brilliant person to go to to think through that stuff. So, so Saul basically disqualifies himself as the person who can lead God's people into their destiny. And his disqualification really comes through uh, the absence of trust. He finds it hard to really trust God. That when the pressure comes on, Saul's instinct is to actually just take things into his own hands and make what he thinks happen, happen. Thinks should happen, happen. That's the ultimate thing that disqualifies Saul in his leadership of God's people. That he, he, he doesn't find it easy to trust God. And he's a couple of massive blunders in that area. And God speaks to Samuel and says, there's this guy called Jesse. And he's got some sons. And one of his sons is actually going to be the guy that leads my people into their destiny. I don't know how many of you struggle with kind of rejection issues or being left out. Um, but... Samuel shows up at Jesse's house and he says to Jesse, I, I need to see your sons because one of them essentially is going to be the future king. There's something about David that makes Jesse assume it couldn't possibly be him. Like imagine someone long ago coming to your parents being like, one of your kids is the most profound destiny. And they go, well, I know who's not. <laughs> like, that's the moment. That's what happens. Jesse's like, I, well, I know, I, I, de like, I have a lot of sons, but I, I know which one it's not going to be. 
And so he gathers all of his sons apart from David. Don't even bother going and get him. It can't possibly be him. And Jesse sees all the guys and he's like, no, it's none of these guys. I'm sure God told me it was one of your sons. Like, I'm not sure what's going on. Then Jesse's like, well, I mean, there, there is another one. <laughs> but it, it, like, it couldn't possibly be him. Just imagine what it would feel like to be David walking into that room. Like the meetings already happened. You weren't invited the first time round. I, I remember Dana gave birth to the twins, our twins, nine weeks early, right? Shocked us all. And um, we, were, we were in hospital. They thought they were going to keep her in hospital for a couple of weeks. And uh, I was on the phone to a friend of mine. And I was like, are you, are you in labor, love? Is that what's happening right now? Uh, it's just a true story. And um, like 45 minutes later, Moses was born. But there was this moment where she had to get rushed to theater and they were doing all the things that they do to get her ready for an emergency C-section. And I was taken to a room like beside the theater. So I wasn't even in the room. And I remember like just hearing really loudly one of the consultants, because there were several present saying, where's dad? Like they'd compl- in everything that was going on, they had completely forgotten about me. And uh, I walked in and Moses was pretty much born instantly. Now, there was that much else going on in that moment. I didn't have the time to feel rejected. Um, or f- <laughs> but when I reflected on it, <laughs> imagine being David in that moment. Where you walk in, your brothers are there, your dad's there, the prophet's there, and you're like, what, what's everybody doing here? And then, like, look, this isn't in the Bible, but I know how brothers work. I am one. It's for certain one of them was like, he said to dad that we had to come and figure out who's going to be the next king, but we were sure it wasn't going to be you. So we didn't even bother calling you. And then, of course, Samuel says, this is the guy. And, of course, they're all shocked and you know, Samuel anoints him as future king. And now if you're David in that moment and you're like a young uppity teenager, like just what, I mean, what do you think your life's going to look like from that point? I, I know what I would think. This is unbelievable. Like the, the most important person really in the land, the prophet, because like, The king had all the power, but the prophet talked to God. The prophet was the guy who came to the king to be like, "Mm -mm, what you're doing is not good. That guy has just said, you're the most important person. Like, just imagine where your head goes with what the rest of your life's going to look like. I mean, it's like your 12-year-old getting signed for Man United. You're like, I know where it's going. Like the holiday house in Spain starts to get Googled and it might be a few years before the salary gets there. But, you know, life is set. And then David gets sent back out to the field. Like that's the first reality check. What do you mean, Dad? Surely I'm not the shepherd anymore. Back out to the field. And then many of you will know the story of David and Goliath, which happens after this moment. 
Again, David's so, like, they, they don't even let him go to the front line. They don't, they don't let him be in the army. They don't let him be where the action is. It's not because of some kind of, like, let's protect the king. They're just like, what use would you be? And then Jesse calls David up and he says, hey, son, would you take some cheese to your brothers in the army? That's how David ends up where Goliath is. He's there delivering cheese. And sometimes we can tell stories about David and we make him sound like the coolest, most faith-filled, Jesus-like character in the Bible. I don't really see that in in David. Um, Once he figures out what's going on and someone's like, there's this big giant and he keeps slagging off our God and, you know, making fun of all of us and everyone looks at him as terrified. We're not going to fight him. David's question, what do I get if I kill him? Go read it for yourself. Three times David clarifies, what do I get if I kill that giant? And the answer, the king's daughter. David's like, look, lads, I'm spending my life with God in the mountains. Bears come from the sheep, I kill them. Lions come, I kill them too. God's with me. He's an, he an immersion in the presence of God that when the giant comes, he's like, that's the easy part. What do I get when I kill him? And of course, he kills the giant. And he becomes famous in the land. And the story goes on. Saul's having a hard time. Like every corrupt leader whose character is flawed, he starts to be terrified about losing his power. And so he holds it all the tighter. And his mental health starts to deteriorate and he's kind of losing it. And like David's obviously by this stage become really handsome. He's like a genius military strategist. He's got all these stories of bears and lions and all sorts of stuff. And if that wasn't enough, he's a flipping class musician. And that kind of makes its way to Saul that he's actually really good at playing the harp. And so he ends up playing music to soothe the king. Now, just again, get in David's head for a second. Samuel has anointed him king. And now he's the entertainment. Like, how how do you process this? We don't get much information in the text as far as how David's emotionally processing all this stuff, but we we just get that he's there. And while he's there, his presence actually begins to not soothe, but irritate. And uh, he ends up having to, like, dodge spears and things (laughs) that are being thrown at him by the king who's really mad because he's so handsome and so physically able and such a class harp player or whatever. And he becomes, David becomes best friends with the king's son, Jonathan, who eventually comes to David and he's like, dude, this is not good. My dad's going to kill you. You need to get out of here. Like you're going to be assassinated. Run for your life. Again, like <laughs> the prophet came, the anointing happened, he's killed the giant. Do you know, like there's a good little sense of God's, God's with me here. I think, I think I'm on to something. And now you're going to be assassinated. Like, how are you processing that emotionally? Where's God when the news comes that someone's trying to kill you and you need to run for your life? Which he does. 
And that's where we find ourselves in this story where David is hiding in a cave. He's hiding in a cave with his loyal followers running for his life. And Saul is looking for him with 3,000 men. It's 3,000 men outside this cave. And Saul comes in to go to the toilet. And when he comes in, all of David's friends say, this is it. This is the moment that's been prophesied. God promised you that he was going to deliver your enemies into your hands. What else could this be but that? Sneak up behind him. Let one of us sneak up behind him and we'll cut his throat and then you'll be king. Here's something really interesting about the promises of God in our lives particularly as we try to move towards them, is there will always be opportunities to take shortcuts. And shortcuts in the process do two things. They remove God's presence and his power from our lives. Sure, we we can get a version of the promise, but it's absent of presence and power. And there's something about how David had been formed. There's something about the way that he'd walked with God that he knew the means could never justify the ends. That it is impossible to separate God's works from his ways. That whenever we do that, we corrupt our souls. That something within us breaks. The choices that you make in your life will bear fruit in your life. Sometimes it takes decades. I remember journeying with a, an elderly man in his late 80s. And he was in the, in the midst of a, of a mental breakdown and moving towards death. And one day we were talking and he began to share with me about decisions he'd made in his business career. 40 50 years earlier. Things that weren't illegal, but they weren't right. And here he was coming towards the end of his life, completely tortured internally by those decisions. Sure, it might have taken half a century for it to appear in his soul, but those decisions had consequences. Decisions that I think today were we to see them in our lives or the lives of somebody else, we would say something like, the old boy's a shrewd businessman. It's not illegal. It's not quite right either. A bit bit ruthless. Definitely lacking integrity. David knew that shortcuts remove more from our lives than they add. That when we inhabit a way of life that's contrary to the way of Jesus, it might take a year, it might take a decade, but those seeds bear fruit too. And David said, no, no, lads, you've totally missed the point if you think I'm going to go murder someone, if I'm going to go make the things that God has promised over my life happen, 
David understood that his job was to steward his heart and God's job was to fulfill his promises. We do the opposite all the time. God, look after my heart while I go make your promises happen. David knew that there was something else, another way. And this crazy thing happens after he cuts the corner of his cloak off and Saul leaves the cave and David comes out and holds it up and has his big speech. And then David, when he finishes, Saul says this, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I. Saul is undone. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. used to say that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. That sometimes in the moment, nothing makes sense. Sometimes in the moment, the pain or the disappointment or the anger can be excruciating, but if we can learn to stay our hand and to trust in the character of God, we will see His promises come alive in our lives. The fastest way to get out of a life of promise is to try to make it happen for yourself. David had learned a a different way. He worshipped a different God who he trusted with everything. What I think is fascinating to me about David is he's so broken. Like this is the same guy later in the story becomes an adulterer and a murderer. he's, He's not this kind of Um, incredible example of perfect decision making all the time. Integrity is not the absence of bad choices. It's the ability to hold your hands up when you realize you've made them. You see, there's a narrative running in David's life that enables him when he makes mistakes to go, oh my gosh, you're right. I wonder what's the narrative running in your life? What are the scripts that are going? Because you see, our actions flow out of our experiences. The experiences of our lives, they tell us stories that we repeat to ourselves that dictate our behavior. Talk to any therapist or counselor. They will tell you most of their work is trying to help people process the experiences of their lives, the things that they've believed is true because of those that they keep telling themselves that dictate their behavior. That's how it works. What script is running in your life? I've said this to you many times before. How you answer the question what you think or believe God is like will dictate to you your spiritual experience of him. If you're 
script is God's angry and grumpy and waiting to catch me out. Because all I've ever known around me was people who were angry and grumpy and waiting to catch me out. Parents, I hope you don't feel too uncomfortable. Dana and I play this game with the kids uh, where we, we challenge ourselves to uh, make sure that, or do our best, it's been a better way to say that, we do our best to make sure that the first thing they hear in the morning and the last thing they hear at night are words of blessing. Good morning. It's so good to see you. I'm so glad you're here. Good night. That was a complete mess. We'll try better tomorrow. I love you. <laughs> What's fun in the evenings when they're in bed and we've shared our words of blessing and we're trying to have a nice glass of wine together and then you hear a rugby match going on in a bedroom <laughs> and you open the door and words of blessing don't come out. And you have to sneak back up 10 minutes later to apologize and repeat the process. Here's the reality. Most of us didn't grow up with that. We've been formed with a script of work harder, do more, watch out, be better. And then we bring that to our relationship with Jesus and we wonder why we don't feel free We wonder why there's no life in our spirituality. We wonder why opening the scriptures in the morning feels like a duty because it is a duty because it's only when you do that that you feel good enough to be loved by God. Psalm 103 says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. That's Psalm 103, verse 7 through 12. Sorry, 8 through 12. Just imagine how different your life would be if that was the soil that your soul grew out of, if that was your script. I'm convinced that was David's script. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse nor will he harbor his anger forever. This is so interesting. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. It doesn't say God will never accuse you and never be angry. There are times when the most loving thing God can do for you is point out the things in your life that are toxic, that are damaging you, your family, and this community. It is entirely appropriate for him to come and go, hey, knock that off. But when we don't live in an experience of his character, we hear that like an angry dad or school teacher or someone else. The first part is so important. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. That's our experience. 
or everything changes when it is, when we experience the compassion and the grace of God, not in our heads, but in our emotions, when we know it. Chris did a brilliant job a few weeks ago unpacking what the biblical term know is. Genesis says, Adam knew Eve. Uncle Phil Emerson down the manual says, and therefore he knew right and well. There is a, knowing equates to emotional experience in the scriptures, not intellectual assent. If I say to you, do you believe God's gracious and compassionate? Tick. The Bible says that I'm supposed to believe it. When was the last time you experienced his grace or compassion? How do you treat yourself when you make a mistake? How easy is it for you to say, I got that wrong? The Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. You know how you get your transgressions removed? You give them to Jesus. You give them to Jesus. You know how you get stuck with them? You hold tight, terrified that God's angry and waiting to catch you out. And round and round and round you go. It is as we present ourselves before a compassionate and a gracious God with our brokenness, with our fears, with our questions, with our doubt, with our anger or our disappointment or our whatever. It's as we bring them to Jesus and we pray, God, meet me here. But he says, let me give you my grace and my compassion and let me take that thing and remove it from you. Now walk a different way. Fast from acting out of anger. Feast on patience. Here's how not to do that. God, make me more patient this week. I'm just going to try really hard to be patient. I'm going to try and keep my hands on the steering wheel while I'm driving to work. (laughs) The immersion of our lives in the presence of a gracious and a compassionate God is how we get remade, reformed. It's as we present the broken parts of our souls, the broken scripts, the tiredness, the weariness, the burnt outness, the disappointedness, It's as we present those things to Jesus that we experience him that enables our lives to bear different fruit. It doesn't come through effort.
Why don't we stand if you're able? I just want to um, encourage us for a moment to, the band will help us with a song or two, but as we come to respond to this, I'd really, um, really want to encourage you to do what you can to present the reality of you to Jesus, not the Sunday morning church you, or not the right you, or the, the thing that you've been told you're supposed to be. In this moment, if you're bored right now, present your boredom. Like if you're numb, if you're like, that all sounds good, but I don't feel anything, bring that. If you're fearful, if you're excited, if you're like, flip, I just want to get after this stuff, bring, bring that, but just bring you. Whatever's really going on in there. What's funny, <laughs> I find anyway, is how... And look, I'm really guilty of this. We did an exercise with our staff team this week um, around emotional health and uh, just being interviewed around my emotions for an hour made me so aware of how absent of even vocabulary I am when it comes to that. <laughs> Most of us spend so much of our lives unaware, actually, of what's even really going on there. And so we just want to create a moment, the band will lead us, to try to find yourself here. And bring that person to Jesus, open, daring to believe that he's full of compassion and grace for you. Sure, he might put his finger on some things that need to change, but it's because of his grace and because of his compassion that that will happen. So come Holy Spirit. Come now, open us to ourselves and to you. As the band lead us in this song, a really simple prayer might be, here I am. Here I am. 